Hello, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. I am your host, Brianna Wu, this week. I am finally introducing the show. I think this is my first time in over 400 episodes. Uh, this week, y'all, it's disaster. Uh, Simone is trapped in an airport. Uh, Christina is traveling, and I drove 28 hours to finish a trip in time to make it here and record this introduction for you on the show this week. So guess what? Y'all are getting an awesome, delicious, calorie-rific clip show. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of our favorite segments this year. And what I thought would be a lot of fun is look at some of our previous uh, guesses about how the Twitter acquisition with Elon Musk would theoretically go. And then you can compare our fears to what has actually happened in the time since. So we're going to do that. And after this, we're going to close with one of my favorite guest segments this year, which was an interview with Bug from over at Spooky. Um, yeah, so much stuff is very serious. So you can get to hear about indie game developers and how uh, you develop a pinball machine in 2022. Fun stuff. And for our bonus segment this week, for only our members, uh, you are going to get a fun segment with my husband, Frank. So look forward to that. Uh, in any case, let's get to it. All right. You've all seen this coming. We have mm. to speak about we it. We have to. We gotta. Oh. We simply gotta. Um, okay. So Twitter oh. is a mess. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. There's going to be a point where you're like, where, how, what, in what order are you telling the things that are a mess? Um, and we're just going to have to kind of feel our way through it because I've got a lot of notes here. So last time we covered Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, he had secured funding and made an offer to purchase Twitter for $54.20, blaze it, a share, an offer which was accepted by the board. Both agreed to a $1 billion fee if either party backed out, uh, which is a little more complicated, a fact that we might touch on later. I've learned a little bit more about it. But moving on to the most recent thing that Elon Musk specifically has done, not the things that have happened within Twitter, Elon Musk tweeted, what? Who saw this coming? Uh, saying that the deal is, quote unquote, on hold temporarily pending a look into Twitter's user numbers because allegedly, allegedly because uh, he learned, I guess, that 5% or more of Twitter's users might be bots and Twitter had uh, reported inflated numbers of real users. A statement which, like everything we're going to talk about right now, needs more looking into. Uh, so a couple things here. Twitter has indeed misreported the number of real people on the site before in quarterly earnings reports. Um, this is not a new thing, as and as pointed out by many people, including our dear Christina Warren on Twitter, uh, the deal cannot be on hold because everyone signed a contract. And part of that was Twitter, you know, with their quarterly earnings reports saying, want to look at these? And Elon Musk saying, nah, we good. <laughs> um on top of that, the, the sub layer or perhaps top layer, I guess, of everything, whatever actual reason Elon Musk has for tweeting that the deal is, quote unquote, on hold temporarily, it is absolutely not to do with the percentage of bots that are or are not on Twitter. Um, it's 
everyone in the world agrees that that is just a smokescreen. What is actually happening? Big question mark. Um, meanwhile, over at Twitter in the days since uh, we last talked about uh, this acquisition uh, to take Twitter private, uh, morale has been so bad. Um, I mean, for one thing, yeah. uh, Twitter's uh, Twitter's employees have, I think, since the beginning of this felt confused and upset because Musk has been like continually disparaging the company's content rules that employees worked for years to implement. Um, he has attacked specific like employee uh, leadership at Twitter uh, who uh, Twitter employees are fond of. Uh, on top of all that, Twitter's shares uh, have just kept dropping and dropping in price since this whole thing, partly because of the back and forth. And then uh, two key people in Twitter leadership were essentially fired by uh, Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal, uh, those being products, consumer products head Kayvon Bekpour and revenue products head Bruce Falk. Uh, according, Agarwal had announced a statement saying they had like decided to go different ways, decided to depart the company. And then Bekpour on Twitter said he was based, he was essentially asked to leave, um, as was Falk. Uh, and this, of course, happened while Beckpour was on paternity leave. So great stuff. Great stuff there. Um, it's just it's a very confusing time. And everyone is being a little bit of a mess. And I, I think much like the question, uh, two of the questions we'll be addressing today are like, why? Why? Um, the reasons why Musk might be wavering on the deal, but also reasons why Agarwal, who is likely you know going to get a buyout and leave the company if Musk uh, succeeds in purchasing it, why he would take out two more like key leadership members on uh, on his way out the door. It's very very confusing and uh, undoubtedly strange and upsetting for the people who work there. But that's that's kind of my my high level summary. Uh, initial reactions to this absolute s show. I, I don't even know where to start because this is all just yeah. ridiculous. And 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 as you said, like, look, the, the the crazy thing is, as we've mentioned before, is that Elon Musk is, seems to be like a completely irrational person, and also um, has thus far avoided having to face any consequences for any decisions that he's made. And mm -hmm. so the the scary thing for me isn't so much, um, you know, like it, it's it's good to kind of make make the jokes like, oh, you don't actually have the money to uh, to do the deal, which might be true, right? Like he might have to actually sell a lot more stock, which would have a lot more repercussions and and could, you know, put him in for a lot more than he's comfortable going in for. Um, uh, and, and that's funny to have that sort of schadenfreude and whatnot. But at the same time, you're like, okay, but to what end? Because mm -hmm. it, people are saying, okay, well, maybe he's using this as a tactic to renegotiate. And and as I said, well, what is he going to renegotiate? He chose not to do due diligence. He made the, the offer. Uh, the offer was accepted. They've signed an agreement. They are going forward. The board has, in fact, said we are going forward and will be encouraging our shareholders to vote on this. Mm -hmm. um, it is not the board's fault that in the three weeks since that's happened, the, the stock market in general has just absolutely, you know, um, uh, blanked the bed. And, yeah, and this, outside of uh, even Twitter, obviously, like the entire tech exactly. industry. Yeah, the entire tech industry, the entire S&P 500, right? Like the entire like 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 Dow is just in in, in free fall. So that is um, they but they're going to say, well, that's not on us, right? Like you you made the decision to move forward as quickly as you did with this to not do due diligence. We are accepting this. Um, so 
um, on the one hand, kind of like, okay, well, he's going to have to put up or show up, shut up. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, what if he decides to be a complete Elon Musk type of person and try to fight this? I mean, mm. the board could make a decision and and renegotiate with him if, if he really seems like he's not going to be able to either get the funding together or, or come to the table in, in some way. Um, because at this point now, Twitter is it's not like they're going to get a competing offer that's anywhere close to 54.20 a share. Um, but with putting all that aside, like I, I, this is just, I guess, what's frustrating is that it's as as crazy as all this is and as, de- as destabilizing as this is for an entire company um, and, and for a whole bunch of people who are involved in this stuff, I don't know what consequences there will be to any of this if he does, for whatever reason, decide to try to back out of it or or do whatever he's doing. I don't know if, if there will actually be any consequences other than whatever breakup fee he has to pay if worst case scenario happens um, or 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 else. I, I don't know. Like that's, I guess, where I'm at is that this is just a mess and that it's very, very just frustrating. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you, Christina. And you, just before my comments, I just want to say to any of our, our listeners out there, if you have a Tesla... I, I I hope you understand we don't relish covering this topic every week. In our <laughs> in our discussion before this, it was like, oh God, do we have to cover this again? Oh my God, no. And then it's like the news is so crazy. Like this is the top story in the news cycle this week. We don't take joy in like covering this because I know there are a lot of decent people out there that own Teslas and are excited about EVs for the future of like uh, trying to address climate change in a structural way. We're not criticizing you. What I am criticizing is a billionaire that seems to have gotten bored with food and sex and is acting in a way indistinguishable from a 20-year-old white guy on 4chan. And Mm. it's the exact same behavior. It is so childish. It is so chaotic. I mean, you you think through what he's doing to Twitter and the people that work there. It's not just the the thought that their boss could kind of be a jerk, right? It's that a lot of anyone that works in the tech industry, a lot of your compensation comes from stock. So he's just nuked everyone's stock options with this entire play if it doesn't come through. Like the the stock is just in the toilet. You know, Microsoft this week announced a huge expansion to compensation to kind of counter the the stock market lowering, right? Elon for him, he's just I like call Godzilla. It huge, but, but well, sure. okay, but it's it's substantial for the industry. Um, you know, Elon just comes through like Godzilla, right? Just destroying the company and all of this. And why? Why? Like, I think all of us know that Twitter addiction where you want to get validated on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And what I find so fascinating is this is a dude with millions and millions and millions and millions of Twitter followers, and he has billions of dollars, and he can literally do anything he wants to do in life, literally anything. And the thing he wants to do is act like a 4chaner on Twitter and hurt a bunch of people. My my overall like thought with this deal is I think we tend to like really second guess it. I actually don't think it's that complicated. I think that because Tesla stock is tanked, and by the way, Tesla stock is crazily overvalued, uh, like worth more than every other car company put together. 
like it's just crazy overvalued. His stock has dropped and his liquidity that he has from selling Tesla's shares, it's a lot more expensive to get to 44 billion. He's gone to hit up venture capital with this fever dream of what he's going to turn uh, Twitter into. It's not a credible vision and he just doesn't have the money. So he's trying to save face to like get out of the deal. I don't think it's more complicated than that. Mm. So I'm, I'm just, I just, I'm so frustrated. Like, I think all of us are frustrated with the the way outsized wealth is kind of tearing America apart and how we're all trying to live our lives. And these bad actors are, are truly hurting the country. But it's so much more personal to me when it's Twitter, which is a place I spend a lot of my free time. Mm-hmm. And to see someone just wrecking the joint for no good reason when I don't believe he's going to be a good steward, it's just painful. Yeah, it it is very strange, and as as you and like just the sad to see, but as and as you said, Bree, like the likelihood that there will be consequences seems it, not terribly high. Uh, so another part of this is that uh, let's see, where are my notes on this? So uh, re- allegedly, the SEC is investigating uh, how uh, back when Elon Musk bought up to nine percent of Twitter stock. Uh, the heck, what was this a month ago at this point? He did not disclose that within like the required window. Um, so they are allegedly investigating that. That being said, the whatever action will be taken there is probably nothing worse than a fine. Um, nothing's yeah, going to happen. Mean, it, 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 no, nothing's going to yeah. happen. And in fact, at this point, I think that even like the the, sh- the main Twitter shareholders would not be in favor of having any sort of sanctions against yeah, him. Because, because again, it looks bad. well, not only that, but they, they need him to find the the to, to get to close out the financing. Yeah, I they think need there's him like a four- to have money. <laughs> there, there's like a 14 billion, um, uh, I guess, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, surplus right now between what he's got committed from other people and like what he would need to kind of get together to get this deal closed, which is certainly not inconceivable. Um, he could definitely, you know, again, his liquidity would have to change, but it's not like he can't do it. Mm-hmm. The other thing, but but that doesn't mean that this couldn't become a really complicated legal game where everybody has to go to court and that just is going to further destabilize the company. And and so, you know, if I'm on the board, I I would there would be a part of me who'd be like, yeah, burn it to the ground, take it all the way to the end, make him buy this thing that he claimed that he was mm-hmm. going to buy. But on the other hand, I think that if you're thinking about, okay, well, how much damage is this continuing to do to the business um, and, and to the people who work there and to the ongoing concerns, that becomes really difficult because he's been such a destabilizing force. Mm-hmm. Now, Parag Agarwal, I, in my opinion, has not helped. I think that the the decisions that he made for whatever reason to shake up his exec team were ridiculous. And 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 from people that I talked to at Twitter, only made morale worse. So I think this is kind of in some ways this is kind of one of those like everyone sucks here situations. Mm-hmm. But I, I I'm still rooting for like the board to not back down like go toe to toe with him, you know, force him to actually make good on what he's doing. But even if they were to do that, he could still win in some cases because at a certain point it might be like, okay, they have to renegotiate just to, you know, not um, destabilize the entire thing before they can get out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the, that kind of brings me to another of the things I wanted to talk about, which is um, Matt Levine on Bloomberg has been covering this extensively and he had a little more to say about this, like, $1 billion walk away uh, 
cat claws, um, which is correct, but also more complicated than I think uh, than we previously discussed and has Mm -hmm. been talked about before and you were just kind of alluding to it christina which is that yes everyone can walk away and whoever decides to has to pay a billion dollars but twitter also has the right to say hey actually you don't get to walk away we they can try to force him to close in which case um they could as you were saying go to court um, and in that case, Musk would have to prove um, that the 5% or whatever, however many percentage of bots there are, like, w- severely financially damaged. W- 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 is, is material um, material impact. adverse effect. Yes. Um, which is totally unlikely to be yeah, proven. I mean, yeah, I was going to say Matt Levine, who uh, his, his opinion column for Bloomberg, I, I can't recommend enough people to subscribe to his newsletter and, and read it. It's He's one of the best writers, I think, on the Internet. Um, He's just amazing. But he was, you know, putting this into terms last week, I think, which when Elon was starting with down this uh, train of thought, which was he he doesn't see um, in any way that any court that anyone would would rule, even if Twitter was actually 50 percent bots, that that would be a material, Mm -hmm. um, you know, adverse impact. Proving that is extremely, extremely difficult. And, And Elon might get away with a lot of stuff. Um, and, and not face consequences from the SEC and whatnot. But there are also, at the end of the day, like a square is a square, a triangle is a triangle. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, 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 it is or it isn't. And I feel like if he gets out of this deal in some way, it's going to be because the board blinks and is willing to either go through a breakup thing because they don't want to have any more distress or because after a, an elongated legal struggle, they come to um a negotiate a renegotiated price like that's the only way i see mm-hmm. like yeah. him him getting out of this for under you know 44 billion and yeah and like go- going to court would be miserable for twitter it would be so expensive yeah. it would be uh, prolonged it would be awful um and i don't doubt that like because of the nature of musk's like fan base it would just feel very bad <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is I think this is the ultimate thing that is so frustrating about this, like watching and it's, it's fascinating, but it's also frustrating. Mm-hmm. It, I have to totally admit, like there's a fascinating aspect in watching this sort of behavior happen because we have never seen anything like this. So, so there is an aspect of it that I still to the day like it is fascinating and there will be a great TV show, I'm sure, about everything that happened internally at Twitter and, and everything that's going on. Um, but what what happens what's happening is you have someone who. You know, you have like people like the Twitter board and whatnot who would be acting like rational adults and thinking about others and, you know, being being adults. And then you have someone who literally doesn't care, yeah. who does not care and who and, and who will. It, it seems to me he does not even afraid of like being shown as, as being embarrassed, not having enough money or this or that. Like it almost just feels like he is the sort of guy that like I would never want to play chicken with because I don't <laughs> know if he will ever swerve. He's Kevin Bacon and Footloose. I'm actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think this is very similar to the end of We Crashed, which we can spoil now, <laughs> you know, where it's, so there's this theme through We Crashed. It's like, who do you bet on, the crazy person or the smart person? Right. And then at the very end of it, the ending is, well, it's a trick question because you actually, the person with the most money wins the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a billionaire and I'll see you in court. And then the story ended with them like fighting over uh, Adam Newman's compensation for many, many years. Jeez. That's what I think this is about, essentially. That's where I think it's going. So I agree yeah. with you, Christina. It's, I just, I think you cannot, 
like Jack Dorsey, if you read about some of his stuff, like sitting in a specialized tent to like cut out RF waves, you know, <laughs> and him like going on like new age spiritual stuff and saying, oh, I just feel so much better. Like the dude is weird. Okay. Yeah. yeah totally. I don't feel like we talk about how weird he is enough, but the guy ran Twitter better than the current <laughs> coterie of people. And I just, I think it's, it's, it's painful watching something I love falling apart. Mm-hmm. Now let's actually go into, <laughs> into our news. Into our news, yeah. So we've had this. Look, it's it's like we're ATP. We just had a bunch of housekeeping, but you know what? It was way shorter than ATP's housekeeping yes. because I might ramble without Simone. We might not be good at keeping things on on a you know a time schedule without her here. But uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not still trying. Okay, um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was the the Twitter uh, whistleblower uh, uh, revelations. So last week, um, a former um, security um, executive at uh, Twitter, uh, a guy who uh, has gone by uh, the name Mudge online, that was his hacker name, Peter uh, Mudge Zadko, who used to be the head of security at Twitter. He worked there for, for just under two years. He was fired in January, and he's accusing the company of you know, reckless, uh, reckless and negligent cybersecurity policies, basically painting a picture in um, his whistleblower document that he uh, gave uh, to, uh, to to Congress, um, basically painting a picture of, of Twitter internally that is is kind of an ish show when it comes to security, not taking a lot of things seriously, not having a good handle on um, you know what types of users are on the platform and and uh, and and. Uh, making allegations far beyond kind of the, the bot allegations that Elon Musk has been trying to to use to to get out of buying Twitter and, and making some other some some larger claims about that too. So um we'll have links in the in the show notes um for uh the filings about what these things actually are and going into some details, some reporting from the Washington Post and some other outlets. But I just wanted to kind of get like a high level thought from you, Bree. What what were your thoughts like from this um from these revelations. So at Twitter, if Twitter Twitter hiring Mudge and then choosing to fire him is like if you were trying to assassinate someone and John Wick were on your team and you fired him, or if you had a phony biotech company and Elizabeth Holmes was on your board right. and, and you're trying to get some funding, like it doesn't make any sense. If you know anything about cybersecurity, you know Mudge, like easily one of the most celebrated, credible detailed, thoughtful, discreet adults in cybersecurity. So when I heard that news that Twitter had fired him, I'm like, well, some really crazy stuff must be going on there because I know it's not him. It, right. it can't be him. And it turns out, you know, he is alleging that he was basically fired in retaliation for coming to the board uh, with some really, really credible and disturbing allegations, like a complete lack of uh, of uh, cybersecurity procedures, mm-hmm. uh, a wide access to things like DM DMs across the, the company, uh, vulnerability to bots, uh, just, just head to top to bottom. Like this being a national security um, uh, emergency, it being a privacy emergency, just being a fundamentally broken company from a cybersecurity perspective, which is, again, unbelievably credible. So 
that's the high level. Yeah. And I, I will say, I, I will say I've talked to people, uh, let's just say, um, close to the company, uh, who, <laughs> who, who are at the levels who would know, uh, who have expressed their, I guess, they've been, they've been skeptical about what Mudge has said. And, and, and hmm. Twitter also, to be very clear, has pushed back completely on his allegations and have basically said that he's making these complaints because he was fired and he was fired because he wasn't a good leader, wasn't a good employee and, and wasn't prioritizing the right things. Many of his former, some of his former colleagues have tweeted, and I think maybe then uh, deleted whatnot, but, but people have tweeted things basically calling into question some of his practices while at the company. You're absolutely right that his, um, you know, uh, reputation has been in, in cybersecurity and in kind of the internet hacker communities is fantastic. And he's held in very, very high regard. I will note, though, just to say that that Twitter not only denies this, they like are like coming out against it. And and I will say, and I don't know, I don't know enough about the situation to really have an opinion when, one way or another, except I will say that people who would have been in a position to know and who would have worked closely with him have expressed to me skepticism and and kind of eye rolling about his revelations. That's, okay, that's, that's, so that's this, the only thing I'll add. This puts me in a, in a hard position because I, uh, I mean, I obviously trust you and that, that feels very credible to me, but that, that's just, it's, it's awkward all the way around because I you've agree. got somebody that's really, really credible. But if you're telling me that these claims may be overblown, like I also believe you. So no, that, I, that I, I agree. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of in the same situation, right? Because yeah. this is somebody who, I mean, and again, I don't know what's true. Like I said, I, I, I'm saying I've heard this from people who have worked at Twitter. Uh, I'm not going to say what their current employment status is, who would be close enough to know and were high enough up to know who have definitely expressed their, again, kind of eye rolls or their disagreements with what's been said. Having said that, I don't know. I haven't been there. I don't know those things. I also don't know how closely, you know, they were aware of everything. So well, let's look at some of the claims here because, okay, so the biggest one is obviously the indiscriminate access across Twitter uh, with basically saying that like, um, what is it, like 7,000 employees, I think, like have access to a lot of uh, very sensitive information there. Right. I find that extremely credible because of the hack that happened yeah, oh, during 100%. the election. Yeah, no. So, yeah, well, when the, well, and even before the right. election, uh, you know, when they had the, the 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 big thing would be when the teenager was able to do the the the, the hack, doing the phishing thing that then took over the verified accounts, including Elon Musk to tweet out the the crypto wallet stuff. Like that, that I think is is the biggest, most uh, credibility bolstering thing that happened. Right, was in twenty twenty when that hack happened. That was very clear that they had not. Uh, I'm not going to say lax because a lot of organizations operate on trust, but they clearly didn't have um, as robust of, of maybe access and security policies as you would would hope a company that manages as many accounts and, and that as many people want access to, you know, could could, could get into for sure. A, a thousand percent. So then you've got misleading the FTC over uh, the protection of consumer personal information. I can't evaluate that. Anyway, pro right. or negative, uh, though uh, something as large as Twitter that's been around for so many years, it's easy to see. Imagine legacy systems not like at a place where cybersecurity experts would feel comfortable with it. Ignoring bots. This is something we know a lot about because of Elon Musk. And it seems to me like this is 
an, uh, something that's literally impossible to know. Like it really depends on your methodology and how you assess that. So I don't think you can know that. Uh, another one is uh, uh, basically uh, saying that uh, Twitter, given governments access to information uh, around the world, particularly India, yeah. uh, that feels very credible to yeah, me. Yeah, it does. It does, especially since um, a, a former Twitter employee has been charged and, 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 and I think maybe even convicted of um, uh, working um, undercover for the Saudi Arabian government um, basically as a spy. And, and we know, as we've talked about before, that the Indian government, which in my opinion is, is pretty totalitarian and, and, yeah. and borderline dictatorship, like they've, they've tried to enforce laws on social media companies uh, about access. And, and even, you know, according to, to these reports, even other people who've, who've talked to, to individuals about this have been like, yeah, even people who aren't much are like, yeah, this guy that was working there seemed like he was probably state-sponsored. So, right. yeah, the, I, I, I don't doubt that at all. I, I, I guess my, my, my only question about any of this, about some of these things would be, were these really covered up um, or, or were these things that, that were disclosed to the right people? That, that, that's, I think, the, the, the bigger question. But, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the big ones. And I, I, I find that completely credible that they, because of the, the various compliance issues with India, had somebody from, from the Indian government working there. I, that, right. I find that credible. And then the final uh, allegation that he has is that Twitter had a failure to delete past data. I am in no position to evaluate that as either credible or, or non-credible. But I think out of these six things here, I think you and I and, and most people that follow this company closely would agree three of them just because of, of past history uh, with the, the company, these these are, are issues that Twitter is known to struggle with, and uh, these feel like credible claims from somebody like uh, Mudge uh, with his experience. So uh, I think, you know, they've certainly put out uh, strong denials in the press, but I think uh, in a credibility war, I'm just I, – I, maybe it's not fair, but I'm going to kind of side with the people who have names and they're on the record. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. I mean, I will say there have been some people who used to work at Twitter, who used to work with Mudge, who have gone on the record on their own accounts to to basically call into question some of these things. And and, hmm. I, and I think I, I think that uh, the Ian Brown, who uh, uh, works um, uh, at, at Netflix and used to be at Twitter, you know, has has made um, uh, comments like uh, noting. And I think this is a good point that in his whistleblower report, which was written to look like it was some sort of official document when it was not, it was just something he proffered. It wasn't like an actual legal, legal document, you know, that he didn't have any, any footnotes or references, you know, explaining mm. why he's making particular claims. And that most of his other anecdotes, I'm just reading from, from Ian's tweets here. Most of his other anecdotes or assertions have a footnote with more context and or detail. It's weird that this one doesn't. Um, also the disjunction of kernels or operating systems and the use of single aggregate percentage is pretty hand wavy. So the, the uh, allegation here that, that Ian is, is taking issue with is server vulnerabilities with over 50% of Twitter's 500,000 data center servers with non-compliant kernels or operating systems and many unable to support encryption at rest. This is somebody who worked with him, who is flat out saying that the, he does not find this credible and, and that he's also saying that, um, he that, that if any he's also said that as I've mentioned elsewhere during my tenure, Mudge's engagement in this area was a minimal and b not constructive helpful. So I think that it's possible that some of these things are are accurate and that some of these revelations are true. I also think it's possible that this whole thing is being done in a really self serving way by someone who was fired by the new boss as soon as the old boss was gone, 
and 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 has an axe to grind. And I will say, I think reading some of this stuff, it does feel a little bit axe grindy um, rather than some of the straight whistleblower things that we've seen before, which, again, doesn't mean that it's not true and doesn't mean that the, that that uh, some of the, the revelations aren't very serious and that we shouldn't discuss them. But it, it's not as if this is coming from somebody who, in my opinion, made these complaints because they you know, felt like this was like their, their, you know, duty. It's like, okay, you waited until months after you were fired to come forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely in the minus column. I, 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 I think that the bottom line here is Twitter. I, I personally found their response coming forward to, to not alleviate any of my concerns here, right? Like they've basically gone through and they've said, well, actually, uh, you know, if you're going to try to log in, you've got to have the right version. So we just think we're completely safe. Something we all know about Twitter is that, uh, you know, they're trying to cut costs right now. So, uh, you know, it's, it's easy for all of us, I imagine, to, to, like comprehend an organization that doesn't want to spend money on cybersecurity. Right. Right. So uh, it's really easy to see that feature kind of being uh, deprioritized right now to the point where someone like Mudge might uh, not feel empowered to do the things that he needs to do in an organization like that. And look, we've, we've all seen dudes with their egos and, you know, I mean, I will say, I, 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 yeah. the only thing I'll push back on, he was a very high ranking sure. executive, right? So I right. think if anybody was empowered to do things, someone who's high, Hired specifically by the CEO Jack Dorsey, yeah, and Jack kind of and yeah. hired, you know, to to kind of fix and, and and try to be kind of this the security conscience or whatever he, however he described his role. I think that I, I am going to say somebody who's who's been as as revered and had as much you know uh, impact as he has is like I, I don't know if I quite buy the I wasn't empowered and couldn't get things done. That that does strike me just from working at big organizations as being a little bit odd. Yeah, Yeah, if he can't go in and say, look, I need engineers to refactor this security protocol with this, right? We need to lock this down. We need to examine how people have access to this database and limit what they have access to. If he doesn't, if he doesn't have the ability to make those changes happen. I think you're right. Like what other leader would you be looking to there? So I think that's really well said. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the issue is this is complicated, but one thing that I do think is interesting to bring up is of course, what impact this will have on any of the Elon Musk drama. And because obviously Elon Musk is going to try to use this to his advantage, whether it actually fits with him or not. And, and Mike uh, Mesnick over at Tech Dirt, um, as usual, I think wrote some really, really good stuff, which was basically um, coming out and all kind of saying, you know, um, it actually seems to confirm Twitter's legal argument while pretending to support Musk's. And 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 I'm I'm uh, basically, you know, one of the under- overlaying uh, points that uh, Mike makes, which I think is an important thing to keep in mind, is that the lawsuit is not about spam, and it's not, you know, and and that uh, you know, spam in the in the you know. Uh, like monthly daily active user is not the same as spam on Twitter. And I think that's true too. So Mike, uh, we've got links to, to both. Uh, he wrote two articles on this, but I've got you know, links to both of them in, in, the, um, in our show notes. I think that he does a nice job kind of showing, at least from his perspective, why even though Mudge, you know, on, on the surface, it seems like this is reaffirming a lot of Musk's um, uh, comments. Really, the arguments he's making are very different 
than what Musk's are, which to that point, Elon Musk this week has now wanted to file uh, a motion to basically extend to push the trial, which is supposed to take place in October, to push it out further because um, he wants to uh, uh, basically he's trying to basically change his argument. Basically, he's trying to kind of almost it seems like use the um, the Mudge um, revelations as as a, a reason to get out of uh, you know buying Twitter rather than um, his, his old old argument is at least how I'm reading it. So can you explain that a little bit more to me? Because the Mudge's direct allegations is that Twitter executives are, are incentivized to basically not address spam on the system because they get financial bonuses uh, according to user engagement. Right. And because of that, they, um, they are... Well, basically, all the incentives are there for them to have misleading uh, ways to measure uh, spam uh, accounts, which they've repeatedly claimed are 5%. Um, That seems to be exactly what Elon's pretext is to get out of this Twitter deal. So what's, what's kind of the disconnect there that they're claiming as far as what could be used in the suit? Well, I guess the disconnect that, that Mike Masnick makes, and, and this is one that I would kind of agree with, is and I'm just going to kind of quote from him directly. Please. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's talking about how spam in, in, in the MDAU is not the same as spam on Twitter. So Twitter's filings with the SEC are only about how much spam is in their MDAU number. This takes place after Twitter has already made use of other processes to try to eliminate spam accounts from that figure. And then they do a daily spot check of 100 accounts. And so that creates a sample size of, of 9,000 over the course of a quarter, um, or, or you know, which is like the, the period that Twitter reports. And then that's stick to, uh, statistically significant for declaring that less than 5% uh, figure. So that's never meant that, that less than 5% of all accounts or all tweets or all, act- or all activity are spam or bots. That's not what they're saying. It just means that the, the 5% of what's counted is, is after they've already you know, done kind of their, their filter for spam stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that does. That does. And, okay. and, and I do think that yeah. those are, um, you know, uh, a different, and, and sorry, I said before that it was monthly daily average user. It's not, it's monetizable daily average user. So those, those numbers, which, and I absolutely believe that there are incentives and bonus structures in place based on getting those numbers higher. That's 100% believable. But what, what, uh, Twitter's filings say, and, and this is true is is they're again they're not claiming that like the aggregate number amount of spam is less than five percent. Just the aggregate n- number that they report in their reports of what they're calling monetizable daily average users because they can't monetize the spam accounts. So they're they're already kind of doing a filter for that. So I so it's a semantic thing, but I do think it's it's you know important. Um, but now what Elon has done because this is different. He's almost switching tactics where he's saying. He said in a letter to Twitter that allegations made by a whistleblower have had a, quote, material, if not existential, effect on the company. So he's now basically saying that the revelations in this whistleblower thing were so, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, mind blowing, no pun intended, that it changes the trajectory. And I guess would argue that irrespective of, of any of his other complaints, this now changes things and I guess would would potentially have. Uh, the ability for him to get out of the deal, which I still don't know how, I'm still not sure what the legal rationale behind that would be because he still agreed to buy the company without doing any sort of due diligence. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? I mean... Like, <sighs> like, 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 like if he weren't suing them right now, if he were going through their normal regulatory process of buying it and he weren't in a, a slap fight trying to get out of it, 
and this came forward um, before it closed. I'm not sure if this would be a material enough thing for him to be able to get out of buying the company, or if he had just bought the company if the deal closed and then this information came forward. It's not like he could then be like, oh, this this was stuff I didn't know about. And, and I, I, I bought a house, you know, that uh, I thought was great. And I, I didn't find out that the roof needs replacing and that the plumbing is is messed up and the septic tank is overflowed and the floor is rotting <laughs> and all the other stuff is going on. I had no idea, you know, the the all, all I know is that like the inspection seemed like it went well. I didn't really read any of the details, but I bought this house. It looks great. And it turns out I've got to put another two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars into it. I want, I want my money back. I want to get out of the deal. Like you can't do that. So I don't know. If he could do that in this case, but that's that's certainly now what he's what he's claiming. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on this. I mean, Elon is the equivalent of like we've all been there. We had a little too much to drink. We wake up the next morning, we saw we bid too much on eBay on a Kate Spade bag, right? right. Like, like, and then you're like, oh, what can I use to get out of it? Uh, oh, it didn't come in the condition. I, you know, like there, right. he's looking for a pretext here and. You know, it it sucks because, like, at first blush, it does seem like a, a coherent argument. But totally. But if you're telling me if that's after the MDAU, uh, maybe it's not. I mean, ultimately, the Chancery Court of Delaware is going to decide this. Exactly. I mean, I, I will say I do think that these revelations and these things certainly seem like this could be more material and more impactful than the bot question. I mean, if we're being completely honest, like I think that that's probably true, but I don't know in terms of, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm still, again, not, not, not sure, uh, what, what this is going to, to mean for everything. Um, but he's wanting to get an extension. I have a feeling he's going to get his extension. I have a feeling that, that this is, is probably important enough. And there are probably enough legal challenges that are raised by these things at the, you know, 23rd hour, which, I'm sure Elon loves um, that uh, they will more than likely uh, postpone it because because right now um, you know the trial is scheduled for October and and I I, I you know if we're we're at the end of August we're we're at September right now so I I, I don't know if, if um, they can conceivably feel like they can go forward if they'd have enough time especially if they want to address these things but I guess uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see I unfortunately agree all right for our third topic of the day we have. A very special guest and a very special topic. It's pinball. It's been quietly there this whole time, unlike the siren that is outside my house right now. Uh, this whole time you've been playing video games, but pinball <laughs> has been there. And recently with the pandemic, it's had a huge resurgence with people buying games and playing them at home. The biggest company by far is Stern Pinball. They are practically a monopoly, but down in Benton, Wisconsin, a small company is shipping games based on horror franchises. They're known as Spooky, and their big title right now is Halloween, based on the 1978 John Carpenter film. Brianna Wu, my esteemed colleague, owns this game. She is obsessed with it. She cannot stop playing it, and she has invited one of the developers of said game, Bug, here on Rocket Today to talk about developing indie pinball games. Bug, welcome to our Rocket. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to hopefully answer absolutely everything you guys ask, so... So, yeah, you know, one of the things I find really interesting about Spooky is, yeah, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a former independent uh, game developer. So when we do independent games, uh, it, it's like the scope of the game 
alters in proportion to your resources, right? Like if you're developing a 3D asset, you don't have someone do a ZBrush pass or do you know what I mean? You're you're just not shipping a product that's on par with AAA. Uh, but with Pinball, what I find so interesting about Spooky is you have the same development costs of like the giants out there with a hundred times more money and you've got to ship a cabinet and you've got to support it and you've got to do the electrical engineering and you've got to develop the software. So I I just appreciate that you recognize that. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to ask from the beginning, like how do you ship a title of this quality that is as good as something that Stern is doing with what I assume is, is less of the budget. Like walk me through that process of being an independent uh, pinball shop. You know, we joke all the time in our, because like the, the joke with Halloween is the, the design team is Chorus Barloff, which is not one specific person because it's not designed by one specific person. It's designed by a committee of us that are all at spooky pinball. And it's the ones who have been there for a very long time, who have always been involved behind the scenes, sometimes, you know, on the scene where everybody can see and whatnot. We joke all the time that that team of guys, like we just look around the room and we're like, it's just us in here. We're, we're, we're doing this. (laughs) And then we look over at Stern and we're like, they have like, 200 years of experience over there (laughs) and we're trying to put out a product to everybody and we're trying to do our best to match the quality that like Stern and Jersey Jack pinball do and whatnot. And uh, it's not lost upon us that that is the case. Like we have to try and match that quality just with like our, our guys here who haven't been industry giants for 30 years or anything like that. Like these other companies have, and uh, I, I, we're all very proud of that for sure. We're all very proud of ourselves for somehow finding a way to to keep up with those guys. I mean, obviously Stern and JJP are, are significantly larger companies than us, but the fact that we're in the conversation with them now is is really crazy to us, and we're incredibly grateful for it. And we're going to keep trying our absolute hardest to stay right with them. No, I you you totally have. And what I think is so impressive about Halloween is you know, you you obviously don't have the toys of like Godzilla uh, mm-hmm. Premium is another game I have or uh you know, uh Alien by Pinball Brothers is one I just got a couple of days ago. We've got both you those games. Have, <laughs> yeah. I, we don't, we don't, you don't have those big toys like that. Like you don't have an alien jaw, but what you do have is a really, really, really elegant rule set for the game. And you have a shooting experience that is really, really dialed in for pinball players. I think that, that really like uh control. So, I mean, is that, what are kind of the, the hallmarks that you're going for with your style? You know, a big thing with that design is like we are very aware that some of our previous games have been incredibly challenging. Just uh, Alice Cooper's a, it's a tough shooter. Rick and oh, Morty's a pretty brutal game. TNA is the most brutal game we've ever made. <laughs> and we've really, I mean, with the numbers that we knew we were going to be shooting for in this one, we wanted to make it more accessible to a lot of people to enjoy because uh, 1,700 people with like a, a game as brutal as TNA, it's. It's a lot harder to pitch that than 1,700 people with the controlled shooter that Halloween and Ultraman is. So having elements of the game that are still pretty damn hard, but 
giving the player the control to at least go after those a bit more smoothly, it, it was a huge part of that design. Like, without a doubt, we just wanted to make sure people could get control of the ball and have more than one chance at getting things. Because, like I said, our, our games have been notoriously brutal before. <laughs> so that was definitely a big part of it. And and people still do expect a level of brutality, especially when you pick horror themes as your titles. Because the whole thing with mm-hmm. horror is they are brutal movies sometimes. And, like, Michael Myers is a brutal serial killer. So he the game has to beat you up at times. Like, it needs to feel like you're really battling Michael Myers. So trying to combine and marry all those things... We knew that the layout was going to be pretty easy and we could make it pretty tough in the code and the rules. So that, that's that's the angle we take on that. Can I ask a, a pinball novice question? Absolutely. And forgive me for saying this. What's, what is a rule set when it comes to pinball? I don't actually right. know. <laughs> so Hit a me rule up. set, yeah. So a rule set, I mean, basically uh, one of my friends, uh, one of our coworkers, uh, the guy who writes all the rules now for Spooky Pinball, Luke Peters, was explaining to me that you should be able to say like the gist of what a game is in like 10 seconds, 20 seconds, but you should be able to explain the rules to the game for like half an hour. Like they mm. should be pretty complicated, but everybody should get the idea of what the game is. So like in a game, like let's say Rick and Morty, the gist of it is you're going on adventures as Rick and Morty and like replaying out the episodes. Like that's just the gist of it. So mm-hmm. to get like super into the, the details of it, you have your certain modes that do specific things. So you have your ball locks that you lock one ball, you lock two balls, you shoot the scoop or hit the drop targets. Can't remember what it is. And then you get your Gramophilite <laughs> multi-ball. And so like a rule set is typically a sequence of modes, like say six to like nine or 10 modes that you try to complete. And then when you complete all those, there's a grand wizard mode. That's like the final, I guess you could say boss battle of the game. So like in monster okay. bash, you would collect each of the band members and their instruments. And then you get to play the super huge show at the end of it. So there's an objective of like, we got to collect these band members. We got to tour this mansion in the Adams family. And then once you do that, basic objective which is usually multiple modes of like different shoot these specific shots those specific shots once you get through those then you have your grand like wizard mode of it all where you get the payoff and the the final like battle of the game per se okay and it 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 develops as the game is out like players give feedback to bug like we'll talk to him on pin side say we like this we don't like this and then sometimes those suggestions end up in the the next version of the code more often than not they end up in yeah yeah, more often than not yeah well i mean depending on how hard they are to implement some of them (laughs) are stupid on pin side (laughs) some suggestions are like yeah that's not happening but (laughs) but no what i wanted to say is you know I i find it so interesting with your company like you look at your first games that you shipped like jetsons i think how many was that it was like a couple of hundred mm-hmm. or alice cooper and then you know halloween uh slash ultraman like it's 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 a much, much bigger game. Like y'all are moving in the right direction. I, I wanted to ask you about 
like you know, just the development environment for this. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, for me as an indie game developer, if I'm trying to uh, develop a game and I want to save money and not you know develop a 3D graphics API for myself, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I'll just go buy Unity or license Unreal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but nothing like that exists for for pinball. So um, I wanted to ask, what is the actual development process for this? Is there an engine? Is there software that you kind of developed for this or, or licensed? How does that work? The the game is coded in Unity. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know terribly much about code. I know like how to direct it in the sense of like we need the modes to do this, the lights to do that, the sound, the visual. Like I can put together the sequences like that. I couldn't type a single line of script or anything like that. So some of that is kind of lost upon me. But uh, the the game is coded in Unity. Um, as far as really? like, the, the physical assets that we're doing in the game, uh, a, a lot of that just comes from the fact that the team that has designed it has been working in the company for nine years, ten years, yeah, nine or ten years now. I don't even know, since I was a kid. <laughs> and um, just across that period of time, everybody on that team was very behind the scenes learning how to do the, I hate to say like real work of it, but kind of the <laughs> real work of it, of making these shots work and, you know, coming up, creating original things to get put in the game. Because all of us can say, I want a ramp here and I want a Michael Myers that pops out behind a hedge there and I want three upper play fields. <laughs> we, can, we can all sit down and do that. Making it and actually walking around the building, gathering up the parts, forming it, making it, and not only making it once, but making it so you can do it 1,700 times comes from just years and years of experience of but working that's in I pinball. I to ask you about uh, specifically, because pinball layouts are like, this is a place where millimeters matter, right? Like my TMNT machine has the most brutal ramps ever, right? And you compare that to like my ramps on Alien and like the millimeter wideness is, it's practically the same, but it's just a slightly different angle. Slightly different spot. one of them, it, it, one of them feels great and Mm -hmm. the other feels it's a rattler. Right. So when you're trying to prototype that, this is what I don't understand about pinball design. If I'm trying to prototype a gameplay feature, you know, I've cracked out Unity and just thrown some code together and and tried something and seeing if it felt fun. But you're talking about like physically building hardware Mm -hmm. and trying to play it. Like, do you just glue like where the ramps are on the table? How do you, how do you like start to prototype a game like that? So uh, one of the biggest things that's helped us with that is a lot of things that we do, we have in house. So like, I can't Mm -hmm. speak for how Stern or Jersey Jack designs their games, but I imagine they can't just make the ramp that minute and put it in the game. That's something we actually kind of have the ability to do with our own like (laughs) metal company being in like one of the designers of our team started his own metal company before he became a pinball designer. And like, so the fact that we can all stand there and go, we think we want the ramp shot to be here. This angle looks good. We've shot the ball in that direction a few times because we always wire up the coils and the flippers, whatnot, so we can bat at literally nothing and then start putting things in. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, being able to be like, hey, Luke, 
this is how we want this. This is what we wanted to do. And he's been making these metal parts and ramps and things like that and wire and welding up the habit trails himself and things like that for so long. He's literally able to just go do it. <laughs> he's able so to say, cool. okay, this is how I have to draw it. This is how we're going to have to bend it up this way, bend it up this way, screw it in. I'm going to go w- weld up a habit trail and we're able to just do it right there. Like within a couple hours, we can have so, the ramp. So you put together like a prototype of it and put mm-hmm. it on the table with like flippers powered up. Mm-hmm. Do you have code behind it at that point or are you just shooting it to kind of feel how it how It's it It's mostly just working flippers at that point, like flippers that can just shoot. And yeah, honestly, before we even get to that point, we're usually just drawing on a blank piece of board. And then we start kind of putting down some shots and like throwing it with our hand. And okay, like we've got something here that we think is probably really going to work. Let's get some flippers wired up, start shooting and whatnot and do it that way. You mentioned like little details like the Michael Myers popping up from behind the bush and, mm-hmm. and these ramps and things. Are Do you have some of, some favorite details from the Halloween pinball table that you, you feel like people should appreciate mm-hmm. or notice or that you really enjoyed sort of designing and imagining? Uh, hmm. Favorite details. That's a good one. Uh, I, I mean, I love the the hedge Michaels. I love the rules for hedge multiball. I love the feature of Michael Myers on a servo popping out behind a hedge like he does in the movie, then going back. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's like playing whack-a-mole with Michael Myers behind three different <laughs> hedges. And it, I just absolutely adore that. <laughs> that that's that's a thing. That was actually my father's idea originally, was uh, <laughs> was the Michael Myers <laughs> popping out behind the hedge. And, um, and another great thing about the Halloween game is because of the in-lane lifters that go to the, flif- the, the flippers, there's mm-hmm. so many places in the game we can hide the ball to have it sneak down and come out at those lifters, which is really good at generating the effect of Michael Myers sneaking away, popping back up out of nowhere. Because the biggest yeah, thing can to I me- say something yeah, about absolutely. that for people that haven't haven't played the game? So the thing that makes Halloween really special is as you play it, you'll shoot the ball, and what Bug is talking about is you'll hear this zhunk, and then the ball pops up and it's at your flipper. And you have to react just like that and shoot the ball. And yep. it, it it makes the game so terrifying because <laughs> if you don't pay attention, it's going to drain. So, so the ball is basically like a yes. slasher to you. Yeah. Sorry, much. go on, Bug. I didn't want to cut <laughs> yeah. you off. Oh, no, you're absolutely explain fine. explain that to our listeners. Yeah, no, it's just the, the elements like that are the things that when you're thinking about like, okay, this is the theme we're designing – how can we integrate that theme into the layout? I That's like my absolute favorite part of the design process. And also what I think is the most important is making sure that the theme you're doing works on that layout. So, and, and we're so willing to just absolutely change everything on a play field and go back and fix things until it speaks to that theme. Because originally with this layout, we were designing it as John Wick, as we've stated yeah. before. And then as we locked up the Halloween license and knew that the game was going to become that we were like, okay, we got to change a whole lot of things about this. <laughs> and then oh. We did. And we got it absolutely worked out to be what I think is a great integrated theme for that title. And mm-hmm. um, going forward in the future, it's, it's, it's such an important part to us is how well does the theme actually make sense to the layout? And mm-hmm. like, cause there's so many things where people think like, I want what would be a good example without giving away future titles. 
Um, <laughs> I, they're like, Do you want me I to want, just pick a movie like, out I of a hat? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Avatar. <laughs> Avatar. Okay, so if they want Avatar, they probably want to get put into the giant tree at some point. Or I haven't seen Avatar in like 10 years. That was a... <laughs> You're so on the money, though. <laughs> yeah. People well, like, really want to see in that the tree. giant tree. And they want to have like the robots that are walking through. Like, how can we lock a ball in one of those giant robots and, and things like that? So uh, usually... I just, I absolutely love that part of the process is that's the theme. How do we do this? And then trying to figure that out because it's, yeah. it's just so much fun. Well, it's, it's a fantastic game. And yeah, you know, like I said, I've got, I have right now Godzilla in my collection. I've mm-hmm. got Jurassic Park. I I've got, I have Twilight Zone. I've got big collections and, and genuinely Halloween is it's one of the games I play every single day. It is amazing. So rocket listeners, uh, you know, this is a game. It's hard to find. I had to work really hard to get mine. You can do it if you're interested, but you know, spooky ships, a good product and uh, check out what they're doing. That's a good segue to, to say, uh, where can people find you online and where can people find spooky online? Yeah, so I mean, we have spookypinball.com. Uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, if you're looking to buy a game, uh, email squirrel at spookypinball.com. Don't ask me how to spell squirrel on the spot. I can't do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I otherwise, you. your local distributor, the, the, like, the main pinball distributors, pretty much all of them carry us, I think, at this point. So uh, you can always check in with them on like what spooky titles are available to purchase and whatnot. And uh yeah, we're on YouTube as well. I have a lot of videos going over the Halloween and Ultraman layout and explaining how to play it and just overall like hanging out and playing it and having a good time and talking about it. And uh, there's going to be more videos coming to there uh, in the future as well for things like that. And uh, yeah, keep an eye out on Pinside. We're always very active on there. We like to see what people have issues with the games, ideas they may have, what mm. they like about the games, what they hope our future games are. All sorts of things like that. So we're always keeping a close eye on that because we like to stay pretty involved with the customer base so that we can make sure we give them what they want. Thank you. I totally echo that. Thank you for coming on. And uh, I had no idea that that process was so like fun and tactile and uh, and strategic. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool to learn about. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Brianna, why don't you tell me what you are up to this week? I am ordering uh, extra Rocket t-shirts, which are still available right now Yo. on rocket-merch.com. Uh, you should do that. Please remember, we have our special scam edition for you to go buy, which is just the normal Rocket t-shirt in a different color that costs $20 more. <laughs> so did we not tell you you weren't on you didn't that yeah no i yes. didn't know <laughs> yes so there's a scam edition That's of freaking the rocket funny. t-shirt yes same thing but in purple with black uh it's a black t-shirt with purple lettering and that's the scam edition I really so like it more of those uh other than that just to be really honest with you if you can't tell uh Jim is going to cut out a ton of my coughing on the episode this week. I'm just trying to get better so I can get back to work. Uh, I've got a hell of a virus. Yeah, I I hope that you feel better soon. I'm sorry that it's carrying I, on. I'm on the upswing. Yes, good to know. Uh, this week I'm just working. <laughs> Let's see, I got back last week and nothing's going on now. Uh, it's an off week for Formula One. So I guess <gasps> I guess I've got nothing going on in my life. 
I have two of my girlfriends. They're trying to get me into NASCAR and watching oh. that. So uh, they're they're pushing me really hard. Like it's peer pressure hard. So why NASCAR? It's just what they watch. They're okay. they're huge into it. Uh, right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can watch that this weekend. You know, uh, Kimi Raikkonen, ex Formula One driver, did a NASCAR race recently. Okay. He was he he did get crashed into and had to retire, but oh no! Oh well, he's fine. <laughs> you know, it's I know this is not something we usually talk about in Rocket, but it just seems like a lot of those F one drivers are just unusually hot, like statistically. Yes, like, it's just yes, they are. It is. It just seems statistically unlikely you would have that many extremely attractive men all near each other and i can't figure that I, out i've said my selling point for it is it is a boy band it's like being yeah. a fan of a boy band who drive mechs that's what <laughs> it is uh that's okay. the sport uh, I love it. <laughs> all right brianna let us go uh oh tell me where i can find you online uh you can find me at brianna Wu on twitter.com and you can find me at doom quasar everywhere on the internet and my work at youtube.com slash polygon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rocket. If you liked it, and I hope, as always, that you did, please leave a five-star review and only a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to review podcasts. Wow, look at you. Oh, indie, indie podcast reviewer. I don't know what you are. Listen, I don't know you. You don't know me. <laughs> All right. Stick around if you're a subscriber, of course. We're going into our special bonus segment, Rocket Booster, for subscribers. But if not, I will see you, as always, next week. This episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 Terminated.